The Giant. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hey Giants, Ram here. Welcome to episode number 79. Our guest today is at the forefront of making coaching and everyday leadership behavior. He is the author of The Coaching Habit, the best-selling coaching book of this century with over 700,000 copies sold and over 1,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. His new book, The Advice Trap, focuses on what it takes to stay curious a little bit longer and tame your advice monster. In 2019, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching and was shortlisted for the coaching prize by Thinkers 50, the Oscars of management. He is also the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from advice-driven to curiosity-led. Some of the topics we spoke about include how to shift from advice-driven to curiosity-led, the importance of staying in a state of unknowingness just a little bit longer, how to tame our advice monster, how people can influence their organization's culture, and his recommended what-based questions. There's a bunch that he shares and they are powerful. You'll be able to use them right away. So if you're someone that's interested in being more coach-like and putting curiosity at the heart of how you communicate, behave and lead with a connectedness to business outcomes and individual growth, then this episode is for you. Now, a quick note from me, if we aren't connected yet on Instagram, I invite you to follow me on my handle, The Giant Thinker, as I share daily posts and stories on helping decision makers, business owners and leaders get unstuck lightning fast through human-centered design methodologies, creative strategies, and personal experiences. Send me a DM. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on my handle, The Giant Thinker. All right, let's get stuck in. I present to you the highly energetic, compelling, and hyper-practical Michael Bungay Stanya. Michael Bungay Stanya, welcome to the <laughs> Giant Thinkers Podcast. I'm thrilled Thanks. to have you on, my friend. How are you? I'm happy to be here. And you know what? What's really lovely is hearing somebody pronounce Stanya as an Australian does. <laughs> because <laughs> you know, normally I'm introduced by people in Europe or North America and they kind of slightly don't get the Stanya quite right. And even though I say my my formal intro, I give people, I say, Make it sound like you're an Australian, you know, <laughs> smear it out a little bit. And they don't really get it. So to hear you go, Michael Bungay, Stanya, I'm like, that's exactly how I say it as well. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's the lazy R, right? Yeah, it's exactly. uh, dragging that out. Um, very cool. Uh, so to those listening, I uh, was just sharing to uh, Mr. Stanya off air. Um, Actually, Bungay Stanya. I've got this uh, double-barreled surname 
with an invisible hyphen. When I got married, my wife and I combined our names in an act of ah. non-human centered, well, human centered yet non-human centered design. Human centered because <laughs> there's a commitment to my wife. Non-human centered is that it just makes my name tricky for lots of people. So Bungay Stan is my actual surname for, for what it's worth. I love it. I love it. Mr. Bungay Stanya. Uh, <laughs> for those that are unfamiliar, or they should be familiar with you now after, um, after uh, making sure we've got your name right, at least. Um, we... <laughs> stumbled across uh, each other um, through basically this design community that has kind of exploded with more exposure to you um, through yeah. uh, Chris Doe, who we connected um, through Instagram. Um, and obviously, um, he interviewed you on his podcast and everyone has been recommending your book yeah. highly. And um, I just jumped on it and have just been blown away consuming you uh, for the better half of the last couple of weeks and, and more so in the last 24 hours in prepare, preparation for this. Um, so first off, Michael, I have an icebreaker question for you. All right. Do not be afraid. Um, I'm not too afraid. <laughs> <laughs> if this is the scariest my day gets, it's a pretty good day, quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you've been described by audiences as like Simon Sinek, but funnier. You've had almost 1,700 Amazon reviews on your yeah. 2016 book, The Coaching Habit. And most impressive of all is this endorsement quote by Brene Brown, the Brene Brown. The Brene uh, if, Brown. If you, yeah, if you would allow me, I'd love to just read a snippet. Sure. Uh, because I do have a question to follow. And Brene wrote, coaching is an art and it's far easier said than done. It takes courage to ask a question rather than offer up advice, provide an answer or unleash a solution. Giving another person the opportunity to find their own way, make their own mistakes and create their own wisdom is both brave and vulnerable. In this practical and inspiring book, Michael shares seven transformative questions that can make a difference in how we lead and support and he guides us through the tricky part, how to take this new information and turn it into habits and a daily practice. So how on earth did you connect and meet the wonderful Brene Brown? So I, I'll tell you a story that makes me sound even more impressive than I actually am. <laughs> uh, at one stage, Brene rang me up to ask for advice on how to do a better job public speaking. <laughs> and clearly, I gave her advice and she followed none of it, which is why she's gone from strength to strength. But I had just, um, you know, I ran a podcast for many years called the great work podcast, which was actually slightly before podcasting was a thing. I didn't even, when it started, we didn't even call it a podcast because it didn't have that language. And I just had found her first book and really enjoyed it. So I had her as a guest on the, on the podcast. So I just got a slight connection with her before she became mega famous and in fact in her second book she asked me to blurb it so i'm one of the you know i'm one of the five people blurbing a Brene brown book or what and and we had just stayed connected and and um you know we're out of we're out of touch now unfortunately because i would love her to you know i'd love to hang out with her and, and be in touch but she's kind of moved into several stratospheres above and beyond where i'm at at the moment but yeah it's you know there's there's something really powerful, uh, Ram, in this world around, um, you know, that idea of weak ties, which is you've got your, your, your close group of people who you hang out with and who you know and you connect with and you really, you've got that strength. 
but actually often progress in the world, whether it's finding a job or kind of reaching out to other people, comes from your weak ties, people you know a little bit, but um, you've got some connection with them, but you don't, you don't really connect with them well. And, you know, Brene Brown is a, is a, a weak tie of mine. Um, I just, I just had happened to get in early enough when she was, when she wasn't quite as mega star as she is right now. Well, mate, impressive nonetheless. And, uh, I was just blown away as I was doing research about you with the, uh, firstly, I was blown away that I hadn't stumbled on you sooner and then bang comes that quote as I read. Well, but you know, this as well. I mean, you, as you've built this podcast up and you've got, I mean, you, you, send me a list of some of the guests you've had and they're fantastic. I mean, it's a really fabulous list and my get, I'm just guessing here, but my guess is partly what you do is you go, who would I love to have on? Who would be cool? Who feels a little bit of a stretch? How do I find a way of getting to them? And sometimes it's like, well, I know somebody who knows Kelly Slater, but sometimes it's like, I just want Kelly Slater. So I'm just going to write to him and pitch (laughs) and Half the time you'd hear nothing back and 30% of the time you hear, sorry, but who the hell are you? And no. And 20% of the time somebody goes, yeah, sure. And you're like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, the very yeah. first book I ever wrote, um, I rang up, a, I, I decided, okay, I need somebody, I need to have somebody to blurb my book. And I'm, I just come across a productivity guy called David Allen. He wrote Getting Things Done. He's a huge, really huge in the kind of, you know, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, he was the definitive productivity guy. And uh, I looked up, I looked him up on the web because the, the web had just about been invented then. And there was a phone number. And I was like, okay, I'll call the phone number. So I dial this phone number and literally on the first ring, he picks it up and goes, hello, David Allen here. And I was totally <laughs> freaked out because I'm like, I, had, I hadn't prepared a pitch. I hadn't thought this through. I kind of stumbled around and he said, yeah, sure. Send me your book. And I sent him the book and he blurred the book. And that was my first kind of person. And then I could write to people going, Hey, David Allen, the guy has blurred my book. Would you like to have a look at my book? And it kind of goes from there. So, you know, it's, it's partly chutzpah, which is, you know, just kind of going, look, all that happens if I ask is I get down to no, and that leaves me in exactly the same position as I am now. It's a good point. It's a good point. And, and the, uh, the momentum effect as well. Once you, exactly. you get one, one person. Yeah. Um, so mate, uh, where would you say your expertise lies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I, I have a prevailing interest in curiosity and and the power of curiosity. And, you know, I was on, I was on a podcast just the other day and somebody goes, Oh, great. So what, how do you define curiosity? And I was like, Oh man, I don't even have a definition of this thing. I'm claiming to have some expertise in. Um, but it's, but it's something about the power of staying in a state of unknowingness just a little bit longer. So it's almost a willingness to be a little skeptical of any perceived expertise that you might have. You know, I, um, I started my, my first job when I finally stumbled out of university was in the world of innovation and creativity, new product development. And this was in the nineties. Um, and it was mostly in the world of what in England they called FMCG, fast moving consumer goods. 
And what it meant was I just ran lots of focus groups. Just, you know, I would sit down with, with people and go, all right, so <laughs> soup, <laughs> what is it? And it was a, a wonderful training in a dismantling of everything I know and a kind of early recognition of before we even had this language around cognitive biases that make you think you're smarter than you actually are. And that willingness just to be ignorant <laughs> and go, ah, look, I, I have a deep trust in a whole bunch of stuff I understand around some fundamentals and principles and structures and tools and models, but I'm also willing to be surprised and willing to just to keep my unknowingness open for another few heartbeats because you just, often end up in a more interesting place if you're willing to just not rush to action or not, not rush to decisions or not rush to advice. Um, a, another breath or two of curiosity can, can lead you into somewhere much more interesting and much more productive and powerful and useful. So Michael, were you always that type of person even as a kid? Uh, how was your childhood could you describe yeah. how you were as a kid and, and how that might've led you to what you do now? Well, you know, I grew up in Canberra, um, the much mocked Canberra, but honestly, I love growing up in Canberra. It was, I, I had a really happy life in Canberra. My parents are cool. My brothers are pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm the older brother, so I can't say they're totally cool, but they're pretty cool. I like them. Um, and you know, I, I probably have two defining things that, that I would look back now and go, this has influenced who I am now. I, I don't know if you ever heard the saying, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. You know, and you kind of go, oh, here I am now. Oh, that's, oh, I understand that. So two things. First of all, I, I, I'm a big reader and not just of nonfiction books, although I read a lot of those. I'm a big reader of fiction books as well. And there's a way that reading fiction allows you to create empathy and allows you to understand that your worldview is not the only worldview. So I do think the fact that, and you and I went on and did a, got a, a, a BA in, in literature and then a master's degree in literature as well. So I've got, I've got a hunger and a capacity in a, a, for understanding and immersing myself in other worlds. I think that's part of it. And then, Man, the other thing that happened was when I was a teenager and um, hanging out with all my angst-filled teenage friends, and I was angst-filled myself, of course, um, I would find myself having, what do we, we used to call them, uh, DNMs, deep and meaningful conversations, you know, in, a, in, some, in my mate Phil's car at two o'clock in the morning, we'd be sitting there talking about life. And... I just found myself being the person who would be listening most of the time and also asking myself, what am I doing here? Is this listening useful or is it not? Am, am, am I helping or am I hindering or am I just kind of not doing much at all? And it prompted me to, um, when I was uh, in, in my late teens, join a lifeline, which is was in Canberra anyway, it's a youth crisis counseling telephone hotline. So, you know, youth suicide hotline. And it, it's where I did my first training around a more, a slightly more structured and rigorous approach to what does it mean to be curious? You know, what does it mean to understand that whatever's showing up on the surface is probably not the thing. It's probably just the first thing. 
and the ability to ask a question and stay present to the answer allows you to drop down to somewhere that's just a little bit more interesting. And I think that that also was a combination of empathy through reading and a, and a willingness to imagine other worlds and a, and a discipline to stay curious a little bit longer and seeing the power of that has really been this kind of dual DNA, the DNA spiral that's helped bring me to where I am now. That and the fact that, you know, other things like I've worked in companies and I've just discovered that I'm largely unemployable. <laughs> so then I have to start my own business. And, you know, there's, that's a whole other story about being an entrepreneur, I guess. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I love the story of you just being in, in the car and, and, and having the DNMs because I think a lot of yeah. people um, can just overlook that and just think that it's, it's not something that is a part of uh, the, the full expression of, of your, your abilities or your, 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 I just think that uh, when I asked that question and, and from everyone from Kelly Slater right through to Shark Tank investors or global heads of some massive company, I just think that your childhood is, is such an important part in, in helping you okay. navigate your centered centeredness and your um some people call it calling some people might call it the expression of your 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 gifts some might call it whatever but i think you know i always have these conversations with people who are dissatisfied and unfulfilled and the yeah. and the career seems to be a little part of that um but it's not necessarily the the solution obviously i'm going on a bit of a tangent here but i think it's so beautiful to hear that that you've discovered um, you know, conversation as a tool to yep. bring into the world. And obviously you do a lot of keynote speaking and, and facilitating workshops. Yep. And I think that's, that's inspiring and helpful for people to, to know that, Hey, if they get caught in conversations through the night with their friends, maybe there's something in that. Right. Well, he, here's the, here's the power of that question for me, Ram when you ask people, tell me about a peak moment from your past, you know, a moment where you felt like a best version of yourself, where you felt that you were overcoming something that was hard to overcome, where you, when you look back and you go, that's, that's a story I remember because I felt just here, you know, and I'm like, this was a fuller expression of who I can be in this world. What that is doing is it's giving you a clue to your best future self. And it's doing it in a way that transcends your skills and your training and your, your heritage. But it kind of speaks to, you know, a, a, a more full expression of your values and your strengths and that kind of Marcus Buckingham way of thinking about strengths, which is strengths aren't what you're good at. Strengths are what leave you more energized when you're doing them. And so often as we think about the life we want to lead, we get blinded by the training we've had and the roles we've held and the skills that we've accumulated. But you get to a certain point where you know what, you can just do a whole bunch of stuff just because you've been around for a while and you're old enough and you're like, you know what, I can, I can kind of, <laughs> I can kind of manage my way through all sorts of stuff. But when you, when you point to a moment in the past going, tell me about a peak moment, you know, and both of those moments that you asked me about, 
you know, I go to really specific moments where I'm like, I'm reading Lord of the Rings. It's four o'clock in the morning. I've been reading Lord of the Rings for like 15 hours unbroken. And I'm just in this world. And it is a peak moment for me. And it's telling me something about a capacity to imagine and to read and to write that says this is when you're at your best, something like that is happening. It's a clue to who you are at your best in the future. So I think it, it's not just about what does the past tell you about where you are now. It also tells you about if you are imagining a bolder place to be in the future, those peak moments from your past contain clues. Love it. So mate, we're going to dive into coaching, all things coaching. Perfect. <laughs> Sure. Lucky that. Um, and a bit of leadership as well. But I'm going to throw this one straight out there. So let's just launch into it. Is everyone coachable? And can leaders coach the seemingly uncoachable? Yeah, you know, so it all, it all, it all rests on your definition of coaching. Hmm. So my, one of my drivers is to try and unweird this whole idea of coaching because it just shows up with a lot of baggage for a lot of people. You know, some people have met life coaches and they're like, I don't want that, whatever that is, that's not for me. And some people have been scarred by some brutal sports coach and some people have gone, well, executive coaching, I'm not an executive and I don't even know what they do. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that just lingers around this idea of coaching. So let me start by setting out some terms and that will then explain my answer. The first thing that I am trying to do is not train people to be coaches. I want everybody to be more coach-like. So it's not a profession. It's not a label. It's a behavior. It's a capacity. So be more coach-like. And then people go, well, okay, Michael, what's, what does that mean? Here's what I mean. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? That's it. So it, it, and it's, it's harder to do than it sounds. I mean, that's, it's like, it's simple, but not easy. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And when you think of being more coach-like as can you stay curious a little bit longer, then, then the question is, okay, so can, who can be coached and who can be a coach? I'm like, well, everybody, because everybody can ask a question. And the truth is this, even the most kind of resistant person is, is unlikely not to answer any and every question that you ever ask her. <laughs> so can people, can you be involved in a conversation with somebody where, where you lead with a genuine curiosity as to what's going on? What do they want? What's the real challenge here? What's on their mind? What, what they might, what they're choosing? I think so. As soon as you make it a more formalized process, hey, Ram, come into my office or come into my Zoom office. We're going to do our monthly coaching session and I'm going to coach you. Honestly, there's a whole bunch of people who get a bit weirded out by that because they're like, I, you know what? I, look, I don't, know, I don't know who you are. I don't really trust you. You're, you're, you know, we normally have an okay enough working relationship, but once a month you have to coach me. What are we trying to do with that? <laughs> what does that even mean? And when there's this kind of weirdness about what is coaching, how is the power working? What's this relationship like? Can, what's the level of trust and resilience in the relationship? That becomes trickier around, around coaching. And, you know, of course, 
in our organizational life, there's that bell curve of people. And you've got some people who you're like, oh, you, you, you're awesome to work with. You know, you're, you're driven, you're confident, you take responsibility, you, you, you take accountability, you, you're, you have that kind of um, founder mindset, which is like you think like you own the business, you have a degree of sovereignty, which is a willingness to take responsibility. You've got all of that. And you've got some people at the other end of the bell curve who are like, I'm passively aggressively disengaged with this whole work. I hate you. I hate me. I hate my life. I hate my work. And I'm sucking this organization dry. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle who are like, can tip either way. And that, there's people down that other end of the bell curve, the ones who are going, you know, I've, I've opted out. And the statistics are grim about it. I mean, you know, this is back to Marcus Buckingham again. He's like 60% or something of the American workforce are disengaged at work. It's tough to coach, formally coach those disengaged people because they've opted out. But can you be more coach-like? Yes, you can. Is being more coach-like often a doorway through people can become more engaged? Well, yes, it is because actually it invites people in to share their best self, to have their best ideas, to take responsibility, but not in a big weird way, but in a kind of just day by day way, which is like, no, I'm, I'm actually on a day by day basis. I'm curious to know what you're thinking about this. I'm curious for you to do the work. I know that you're a huge advocate of curiosity uh, in all forms and, and especially uh, curiosity being at the heart of leadership. Uh, yep. And I love what you just said just then about, being curious a bit longer and taking action uh, a little bit slower, um, being slower to, to yeah. get advice giving and all that. Uh, I think it's great uh, for a leader. I, I wish so many that I was um, sort of reporting to uh, would, exactly. would, would have been more like that. So in, in, your, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> in your opinion, what do you think makes a great leader? Uh, and and what, what does even a great leader mean to you? Well, You know, a, a great leader, it depends on context. So it's, it's a little tricky to, to answer that generically. Um, you know, if you look at Daniel Goleman's article from HBR in I think 2000, so 20 years ago, called Leadership That Gets Results, Goleman actually, and Daniel Goleman is the guy who popularized emotional intelligence. Um, he, he says, look, actually, there are six different leadership styles in this world. And great leaders know how to use all six stars at the appropriate time. So I think there's a behavioral spectrum, which is you show up in the appropriate way at the appropriate time. Um, sometimes that is like, I need, to, I need to be clear and make a decision. Sometimes it's like, I need to be coach. Sometimes it's, I need to, to think more democratically about how we, how we move things forward around here. Then there's capacity to do things that are required of leadership, like, like dream about the future, like define what needs to be focused on, like make, make difficult decisions. So there's a spectrum around skills and behavior. But then the, I think the more interesting question then starts becoming, so where does that lie? Does that have to lie with individuals or does that have to lie and fit within the, within the organizational capacity? Because there's a there's a you know there's this new world being born at the moment where 
we try and step away from the classic hierarchy of organizational life. It's, you know, the big boss, the, the middle boss, the junior boss, the frontline people. And there's this kind of hierarchy about, well, I tell you what to do and then you tell me what to do. And then I tell them what to do. And you know, your capacity for leadership is this because you're, you're at that level. And then, and you have this kind of role based authority, which is often based on tenure or good luck or, or privilege. You know, you're like, I'm personally, I'm a six foot three straight, overeducated white dude. You know, I always end up at the near the top of a hierarchy because I'm six foot three white male overeducated white dude. I mean, it, it really helps. Um, so, th- you know, there's, um, there's a thinker I love a guy called Aaron Dignan, uh, uh, part of the creative community, actually. Um, his company is called the ready and his book is called brave new work. And it really, says um it's got two two like twin stars at the heart of this book the first is how do you build a people positive culture one that doesn't forget that humans are the 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 essence of your organization um because so often organizational life defaults to dehumanizing people because we're all a bit of a machine because of capitalism the other, the other part of the, the twin star, one's people positive, one is complex conscious, which is to recognize that actually our organ, organizations are really not like machines. They're more like complex systems, like they, they're, they're emergent. They're, they're less like a, a car and more like a flock of starlings or a flock of, I don't know what they're straight, a flock of rosellas, something like that. You know, they're like, they, they fly in a certain way and they, they're driven by principle rather than by rules at their best. And what becomes interesting is if you start going, well, what if being a leader isn't about the role you're in? It's just about a expectation about how you show up and how you do the work and what accountability you take on. And understanding that the way you lead changes depending on the context you're in at that moment. Because often, you know, one of the great acts of leadership is to shut up and do nothing and say nothing. Um, one of the great acts of leadership is to allow other per- people to, to, to run the experiment, even though you know it's going to fail or you're pretty sure it's going to fail. You're like, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. But my job is to shut up and allow them to make, have this lesson. Um, and gain that knowledge. Cause you know, the saying wisdom enters through the wound. You're like, you, you've got to screw up to get better at stuff. It's just the law of the world. It's how you learn. It's like you bump into something, you get that feedback. That's the learning cycle. So how I define leadership, it's, it's a tricky, a tricky question, Ram, in that much of what I think about is whilst acknowledging and actually doing a lot of work around the, I want to create sovereignty in people. I want to create a sense of, I understand the world. I can interpret the world. I take responsibility for my actions in the world. It's also to say, look, if you, all you do is build out individuals, you don't build much. If you build out a system and you think about a system and you think about how do I grow individuals and how do I build a resilient system, then things start getting really interesting. Man, I think you answered it, answered it perfectly. I, 
And if for those that haven't watched your TED talk, I was just about to say, I love this statement in your TEDx talk. Uh, well, your TEDx talk is titled how to tame your advice monster. Uh, yeah. One of the many great things you said on there was it's very rare that the first challenge is the real challenge. Would right. you mind elaborating on that? Well, I know that this audience, which is, you know, primarily a design focused audience gets this in theory, at least where you're like, oh, you know, your, your first answer is never the right answer. The first challenge is never the right answer. And the first issue, you know, what happens when your client shows up and goes, I need this. <laughs> so what's happened is this messy things happen where they've gone. I think I've got a problem. I can't fully define it. And in fact, actually I've somehow slipped from the problem to the solution. And I've come up with my, my, you know, basically wrong solution because they're not a designer, but they think they are. So they're like, I'm presenting you with a, a poor solution to the wrong challenge. <laughs> and I bet anybody who is a designer in the creative space has lived that experience. And the truth is that you, you do it as well. Even though you rail against your clients or prospects who, who do that, you do it as well. And this comes back to this, this definition of curiosity, which is the power of staying in a state of unknowing just a little bit longer is really powerful. And it's helpful to have some disciplines around that or some principles, which is just make a bet that the first challenge that shows up is never the real challenge. And you might be wrong occasionally around that, but the worst that happens is you, you're testing it out. <laughs> you're just testing it out. And if as a, somebody in the creative community, you start framing your role as my job is to figure out what the real problem is that we're solving here, rather than to be the person who comes up with a fast, quick, often wrong solution you become a lot more valuable to the world because the world is full of people who can come up with fast ideas. That, that is, that is trivial. You know, that is commoditized. The world lacks people who have the discipline to say, we're going to get really clear on what the challenge is here. Because quite frankly, once we crack what the challenge is, so often the solution starts to present itself you know, get clear on the, on the, on what the real problem is. And the solution often shows up as the punctuation that follows the problem statement where you're like, Oh, and I see this all the time when I, when I teach people to be more coach, like I, you know, we go through this problem and we go, so what's the real challenge here for you? But what else, what else is a challenge? Yeah. But what else is a challenge? Okay. But what's the real challenge here for you? And people are like, Oh, okay. The real challenge for me is this. And they're like, Oh my God, that's the challenge. I already know what I need to do. Stop talking so I can go off and start <laughs> sorting this thing out. It's this, it's this amazing moment when people land on what the real challenge is. It's, it's like, I always think of it like a gymnast when they stick the landing, you know, they just go swirling through the air and then they just go thunk. And you're just like, how did you do that? It's the same kind of emotional hit when you find the real challenge. It's like, whoa, we've done it. That's the hard work. You know, I was, um, I was reading a, 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 a kind of an ebook from the Basecamp people, which I know some people will know, Jason Freed and his team. I think it's called Shape Up. And um, 
one of the things that I hadn't come across, but I thought was a really useful understanding was it's like, you know, our, the way we define our projects, which he encourages people to do in six week sprints, he, he defines them as a hill. And he says, look, before you get going on a whole bunch of the stuff, you got to do a whole bunch of stuff trying to work out what the whole bunch of stuff is that you actually need to do. And so they use a hill metaphor for the work that needs to be done within their kind of mini project sprints. Well, they're not really sprints. They're like six week stretches. And you've got to, you've got to get up the hill before you can get down the hill. And I love that because getting up the hill is really about getting clear about what the real challenge is and what's the real work that needs to be done. Cause once you get to the top of the hill, you're like, Oh, I get it now. Now I just got to implement it and you kind of go down the hill and that's, getting up the hill is actually the harder work than getting down. Does that, does that metaphor work? It does. Yeah. For you, right? Yeah. 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 And I love, I love what you said about the, and you've coined this, the AWE, <laughs> uh, the, the yeah. and what else. Um, I love that when you, when you go down that, that barrel of, uh, and what else? And you, and they, they're expressing, oh, well, and then there's this other thing and then you go, okay. And what else? And I love that. Um, it, it's, it, it's similar to the, to the, obviously the five whys and other sort of frameworks there. Um, I guess the one, th- but, but, but different. I'm going to tell you, can I just it, jump please. in Ram? Because, because lots of people know the five whys as a framework and it's a very powerful framework, you know, getting kind of root cause analysis and, and dropping down. I have a stand about it, which is you should not use questions that start with why during your everyday ongoing interactions with people for a couple of reasons. The first is this, and this is why and what else is a bit different from the why question. The first reason not to use why is that it's very hard to ask the why question in a way that doesn't sound accusatory because <laughs> why did you do this? Or why do you think this sounds very similar to why the hell do you think this? You know, so unless you get the tone just right, it's really hard to, to do. Secondly, most often in my experience, when people are asking the why question, they're asking it from a self-serving position, which is I want to find out more so that I can come up with a better idea and solution. And it doesn't often serve the other person who's being asked a question as much as it's serving you. And I think one of the principles about being more coach-like is ask questions that help the other person. Here's the other slight difference between and what else and why. What, what why does is it's trying to deepen, deepen the knowledge and, and, and insight. And it, it does that within that kind of let's do this, the five whys and do it in a formal way that can be really powerful. I think of and what else is often it's about extending the space of curiosity. You know, I ask any question, you know, so what do you want? Right, what else do you want? Right. What else do you want? And it's just allowing the, what you want question to go, to, to go horizontally longer. And then when I go, but what do you really want? That's when it drops down to the next level. So there is a way that it goes through this folking, but it's like, go across, go deep, go across, go deep, go across, go deep. This is fantastic. And uh, let's, let's continue down that, that um, type of example. Okay. So real world, uh, current and super relevant example, um, many individuals and solopreneurs to freelancers right through to small business owners and, and large business owners, they're planning and in, in preparation mode. And we're recording this tail end of May, 2020 um, mm. in, in many ways, pandemic proofing and mitigating risk 
yeah. um, of requiring physical touch points yeah. um, in their product and their service delivery. Uh, what are some questions you would ask a person who is overwhelmed mm. with all the digital options available yeah. to expand their business offering? I have three questions, none of which might be useful. <laughs> but let me let me ask let me offer up the three questions, and people then can pick and choose. The first I would say is this: What do you know to be true? In a time of anxiety and stress, our brain, particularly our little amygdala brain, the lizard brain, right on the top of your brainstem back there. Uh, it just craves certainty. I mean, it always craves certainty. It's not, it's not the whole point of this little lizard brain is certainty. That's it. Cause it goes, look, my job is to keep you alive. I know when things are certain, I'm more likely to keep you alive. So I'm just all about certainty. It doesn't even understand crisis. It's just constantly going, I need certainty. But we become more aware of that on a kind of conscious level in a time of ang a, a stress. We're like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening with the economy. I don't know what's happening with my business. I don't know what's happening with my clients. I don't know what's happening with my health. I don't know what's happening with my family or with the poly. You know, there's a whole bunch of uncertainty that's there. What we often do then is we collapse our interpretation of the world into the truth because it really sounds and feels like the truth. You know, when we're like, this is what I think is true. This is my belief. This is my interpretation. This is my judgment. These are my opinions. Your opinions sound like the truth to you. So there's a great discipline to go. What do I know to be true? And what there's two places to look internally and externally, externally, what you will typically find is there's far fewer data than you might imagine. Um, it, but it's worth kind of going, what, what's fact and what's my interpretation of the fact? And once you start just focusing on the fact, it's just a very grounding experience going, oh, you know what? I made up a whole bunch of stuff. And those judgments are probably might, might well be helpful, some of them anyway, but figure out what I know to be true. And you want to know about what's true out there. And you want to know what's true for you. And you'll have some degree of awareness around that. You might be in the moment. I know what's true about me is I'm feeling really optimistic right now, or I'm feeling really pessimistic right now. I know that I'm good in a crisis. I know that I work best when I'm in a small, flexible team, not a big corporate hierarchy. I mean, it'll be different for everybody, but there's some truth about what's true for you. So I think that's powerful. I think the second question flows from what do I know to be true, which is what do I want? And honestly, this is a hard question. It's one of the seven questions in the coaching habit book. It's number four. And I call it the foundational question because I think it's the hardest of the four, the seven questions there. And what I recommend you do is you add the, and what else question that Ram was talking about earlier, which is like, so what do you want? And what else do you want? And what else do you want? So what do you really want? It is one of the great acts of showing up as an adult in your life to know what you want and to push a little further around this can be really powerful. So then you go, what do I know to be true? And then what do I want? And then the third question is really, again, from the coaching habit book, it's the strategy question. 
And it's about understanding the choices you will make because every choice has consequence. Every choice has opportunity cost built into it. So the, the strategic question or strategy question is, what are you going to say yes to? And if you say yes to this, what must you say no to? Because the temptation will be to try and say yes to a whole bunch of stuff, keep a whole bunch of options open. And I'm not saying that that's, that's, that, that might actually be a great outcome, which, you know, to go back to, um, what's his name? Good to great guy. Uh, you know, he says, look, part of how you do strategy is you fire bullets and then you fire a cannonball. So you like, you figure out what's going on and find the right target and then you, you commit to it. But I do think there's something to say, we prevaricate where we kind of like, Oh, well, I'll try and, I'll try and do a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of the other. And you kind of half do a whole bunch of stuff. So I think the third question that can be really helpful is what are you going to say yes to? And for that yes to mean something to actually have impact, to have shape, you've got to, you've got to ask, what am I going to say no to? And you've got to say no to some things, which to be clear means saying no to some people you need to figure out who you're going to disappoint, who you're going to let down, who you're going to confuse, who you're going to irritate, because that's what's involved in you saying no to something. So I think those three questions are useful orienting questions in this kind of time of uncertainty. Hey, they're powerful. What do you know to be true? Yeah. What do you want? Following that with what else do you want? What else do you want? Uh, and the third being, what do I say no exactly. to? Uh, what do I say yes to? E equally also saying, what am I saying no to in order to to do this thing? And then the opportunistic cost, as you mentioned there. Um, mate, that's so relevant for the times when right. everyone's so busy and everyone's got a million things that they should do because such and such is doing it or my competitors are doing it and everyone's deploying on all these channels. Yeah. Know, you, you freak out. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of freaking out going on because you just don't know. And you're getting all this input from people, just as you're saying, which is like, oh, they've launched the thingy. Oh, they've invested in the whoever platform. And you're like, oh, I should be doing that as well. And you're like, you, you're part of it's around. You've got you to find the signal amongst the noise. I love that. Um, this tails well with the, uh, the this uh, subject matter that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is around culture and organizational development. And, and uh, I heard from a podcast called culture bites from the guys that do the, the LSI um, in Australia. And, and one of the LSI coaches said um, his definition of culture is the, uh, is the perceived behavioral norms and the perceived um expectations of of how you should behave and and he very much made that distinction of perception and and um not not what's um a hundred percent um what's told to you but your own individual perception of behavior which i think is a, a critical um sort of distinction of of well culture is this well hold on maybe that person's just interpreted it that way and and i and what triggered this comes this sort of theme is what you said then which was around the first question, what do you know to be true? And so the question I guess I have is what is organizational culture to you? First of all, I'd love your definition on it and how can people within the organization influence the culture? 
you know, there's a, there's a whole body of work around this. I'm, I would actually push back around the idea of it being the perceived stuff because I actually think most of culture is not perceived. That's actually what makes it tricky. So the, the, the starting point for me is the work by a guy called Ed Shine, which is spelled S-C-H-E-I-N. And I reckon if you're going to get one book to start thinking about corporate culture, you get his book called The Corporate Culture Survival Guide. And Ed Shine says, um, look, culture has three, three components to it. And they're kind of, there's a hierarchy from the most obvious to the least obvious. And you can think of that hierarchy as uh, what you see, what you say, what we do. And so the, the top of the hierarchy is what you see, which is his language is the artifacts. So you look around and you go, all right, so when I come into this, this agency, this is what I notice. There's the type of cars in the car park. There is a car park. The lobby is done in gold disco glitter with a glitter ball and bean bags. The, the receptionist is actually an iPad. There's not actually a person there. Um, everybody wears chicken outfits as they're, I mean, I'm being kind of ridiculous for the sake of it, but there's a whole bunch of things where you kind of look around and you go, what, what, how do people, what are their titles? What's the org chart look like? Um, how do people sit? What's the space feel like and look like? Um, that's the artifact. That's the most obvious thing to look at. It's tricky because it's easy to misinterpret what you see because we all have our biases. Oh, look, there's a disco ball in the foyer. That must mean that they like disco music. Who knows? The second level of corporate culture is what people say explicitly about what matters to them. So the classic is the corporate values. Here's what we stand for. Here's our vision. Here's our mission. Here are our values. We have five values, integrity, honesty, I don't know, something else. What we all know is that quite often the explicit values of a company are basically BS. You know, they've been like, they've been laminated and stuck up on a wall going, oh, somebody came up with these, these things. We've made them as banal and as inoffensive and as bleedingly obvious as possible that they don't actually show up in the way that influences behavior. They don't really show up in the way we, we, we give performance reviews or measure people or celebrate success. They just like, they sound good. So we'll throw them up there and now we've got values, but it's also what you hear your leaders and your managers and everybody talk about is this is what matters to us. And then the third level is, um, so shines levels, artifacts, and then second level is espoused values is what he would call them. Um, the third level for shine is unconscious assumptions. This is the, the way we behave when we don't even really know how we're behaving. Because about 50% of our behavior, this is from a study from Duke University, about 50% of our behavior is unconscious. We don't really think about it. We just react to it, responsive. We're, we are, we are pattern-driven people. We are habit-driven beings. It's what allows us to be efficient. It's what allows us to make our way through the world in a successful way. But it means that we're not often conscious about how we show up or what we do. And unconscious assumptions are kind of the unspoken habitual ways that we perform and behave. Um, just as the kind of the, 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 norm, the behavioral norms of that organization. Now, if 
you get all three of those elements aligned, you have a strong culture because what you see reflects what we say, reflects what we do. What happens, I think, in most corporate cultures is somebody comes up with an idea of the culture. They look at what they can actually change. And most often what they can change are the artifacts. Okay, we said we were innovative. So we are, we are going to have that disco ball in the, in the foyer um, and, and the espoused values. And we're going to paint in big letters in the foyer, innovation, it's the heartbeat of our organization or whatever. Um, so you, you can do all of that. But then you go, all right, so your meetings, are they innovative? And your, your billing, is that innovative? And is your client relationship, is that innovative? Are you really seeing that go the way th all the way through? And mostly there's a gap between the, the behavioral norms and the espoused values and the artifacts. And that's when you have one of these cultures which don't feel quite resilient and rigid. They feel a bit brittle and a bit fake. Where you're like, it's when you have leaders stand up going, this is, we're, we, we are a people first company. And everybody who's, you know, all the people go, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're a money first company. We're not a people first company. Who are you, who are you kidding? Because the behavior, the norms are all about, you got to work late because you have to deliver this to the client because we need this cash. So that's why I step away from the perceived piece because mostly we don't perceive behavior. We just act it. And um, it takes a great deal of conscious effort to be focused on the behavior on an ongoing basis and being willing to call out the behavior that is off base, not quite aligned to your vision of what your culture might be. And, you know, for, for me, one of the other coaching questions that I find really helpful in this, or it's not a coach, it's just a question is when I, when I talk to the people who I work with, we will not always, but often, finish a meeting with the question, what needs to be said that hasn't been said? And it actually gives us an opportunity to talk about stuff that feels slightly off. That is often, you know, it's not terrible. It's not a disaster. It's not even, it's almost hard to articulate, but it's just something where you're like, ah. <laughs> and so what needs to be said that hasn't been said, I think is partly about cultural alignment and resilience and kind of cleaning up it's like, it's, like, it's like reviewing things for rust and just going, look, we've got to scrub the rust off on a regular basis. And what needs to be said that hasn't been said is a way to keep things shiny rather than, than slowly the pervasiveness of, of rust and, and, and disintegration. Because, you know, entropy, everything kind of falls apart. Mate, I am digitally <laughs> salivating right now. Um, there, there are so many things that you said that really struck a chord to me. I'll just really yeah. uh, mention two things. Uh, the last thing you just said about um, that question, what needs to be said that hasn't been said. Um, I first heard that question uh, probably about three or four years ago um, through a, a podcast episode with Tim Ferriss. And um, since then, I've asked myself that question in two specific times at the beginning of the year. Uh, because it kind of reframes the importance of things that I'm going to tackle. And uh, the said being, 
the the doing uh what do i need to do that needs to be done like really within myself and and i go down a, a really yes. self-reflective position there but then also just products or services if i really want to launch something it's like well yeah does that really need to exist uh that really really needs to exist for me even um and so so that's very very powerful i i, I suggest anyone listening use that it's so powerful um and then the other thing that you said and and you literally just breezed past it but the the employee yeah. that stays back late or that works a little bit longer and, or maybe even does some weekend work, right? In a standard nine to five, nine to six, whatever job. Can you just unpack a little bit about what makes a person willingly work in that culture where they, their, the perspective might be more around, um, I'm doing this willingly. The culture is very supportive. I'm in line with the vision and the yep. goals of the business, but individually on an individual level, I'm motivated. How do they, how does an organization build that type of culture versus another one where it's like, Oh, I'm underpaid. Yeah. I don't deserve this. I'm, I hate this place. I hate these people. If, if I knew the easy answer to that, I'd be a wealth, a very wealthy man. Um, <laughs> Because I think there's part of this, Ram, which is a little bit, you know, they say people join organizations, but they leave managers. So I do think that part of this is just about understanding um, where your unit of success lies. And I am quite a big fan of this idea that the smaller units are the uh, are actually where the culture really gets tested and 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 works or doesn't work because if you're working at people like just an individual level that's interesting but it's often not enough because you know we're, we're we are individuals but we're always in relationship with other people it's actually in the interactions with other people that culture gets built um and if you're trying to do it from the top, even if you're a relatively small shop, you, it's, it's hard to kind of go, right, 20 people or 40 people. I mean, my, the company I started, Box of Crayons, has 20 employees. It's like, it's, it's hard, <laughs> just with 20 people. Imagine 20,000 people. I don't know, you know, that's really difficult. So there's something about pushing responsibility and accountability to the place where it belongs. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's an easy way of doing this, Ram. I think there's a way of, of, of not tolerating the behavior that you don't see. You know, somebody once told me that one great way of testing the people in your organization is um, t test testing whether they should be there or not for you is if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I'm quitting. How hard would you fight to keep them? And it's pretty black and white. You're like, Oh my God, we screwed up here. We need to, and doesn't walk out the door because they add to who we are as an organization. And we don't, we don't really don't want to lose them. And there are some people where they say I'm quitting where you go, you know what? You've been awesome. Thank you. Good luck on the next step of the journey. Um, you're not, we're not going to try and find a way of, of keeping you around there because you know, your time is up. And you know, if you look at your, the team you manage 
if you look at the organization you manage and you go, how many people are in the first category and how many people are in the second category? That probably tells you something. And then the, for me, I always go, so I'm less interested in the other person because they're, they're adults and they're sailing their own ship. I, I have very little, I have no control over them and I have a little bit of influence if I'm lucky. My question is, what's my role in this? How have I let this happen? How have I contributed to this? How have I been clear or not clear about what's acceptable or not acceptable? How have I set out the consequences of misbehavior? How, you know, it comes back to that question we shared earlier on, which is like, what am I saying yes to? And what am I saying no to? And if I'm saying yes to keeping that person around, even though dot, 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 whatever it might be, I'm saying no to the values of this organization meaning something. <laughs> I'm saying no to truly rewarding the person who is up for it, who has the founder mindset, because now that person is paying for that other person's diminishing behavior. So it's really annoying to have people like that working in your space. It's also almost inevitable because that's, you know, because back to Marcus Buckingham, like 60 or 70% of people are disengaged at work. So your job is to set expectations, understand what your values are and point people to the consequences of this is the way we behave around here. And if you don't behave like this, then that's fine. That's your choice, but you'll have to go and do that in some other organization and not mine. It is a, a lifetime of work, isn't it? Um, it's hard. Oh, it's, 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 it's miserable because when people are messy and brilliant and difficult and selfish and generous, and they're this kind of amazing complex thing. And they're like, they're rarely, they're really perfect. Like you and I are Ram. I mean, somehow we've transcended that, but everybody else, what the hell is going on with them? <laughs> Mate, I could talk to you forever. I've got some wind down questions for yeah. you, but I, I am very, very conscious for your time and so grateful. So uh, a few questions to wind down, mate. Uh, a question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Michael, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? You know, I have such a good life <laughs> that I'm, I'm, um, you know, I would probably say be kind, you know, I'm, that's it. The, the, the things that I, I regret very little from my past because what's the point? Um, you, you, you screw up, you try and learn from the mistake and you move forward to try and be the best version of yourself going forward. But if there are things that I um, think about from my past, it's the times where I've done those small acts of cruelty. And I'm like, Michael, be kind. You go a long way with kindness. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? A person that has inspired you to think bigger, dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? I, I like, I would point to Jack White of White Stripes fan fame because he and Bob Dylan as well for similar reasons, which is they 
have a commitment to creativity. They are constantly doing new stuff. They have a, they have a sort of an awareness about commercial commerciality and brand and brand without being a slave to it. Um, and they, they have an elegance in what they do and they, and they are also poets. They create beautiful language. Love it. Mate, what's next for you in the next 12 months and beyond? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't fully know. Um, about 12 months ago, I stopped being CEO of Box of Crayons, the company I founded. And, you know, that's a, a weird shift because I'd been doing that for nigh on 20 years. And the last year has been a commitment to transition, which is like helping Shannon, the new CEO, establish herself as a, um, a CEO and to have me as the founder establish myself as the founder who doesn't screw over the new CEO because founder transitions are notoriously difficult because, you know, you have people like me going, Oh, let me just keep my fingers in these pies and let me just kind of undermine you in these subtle ways. So it's been a really great year. Shannon is brilliant and doing a great job. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I now show up in the world. You know, I've got, um, February the 29th was a big date because I had my new book come out, The Advice Trap, and I also gave my TEDx talk on that date. And now I'm trying not to fill in the space. You know, I'm trying to take a bit of my own medicine, going, you know what? Stay curious a little bit longer. <laughs> Sit in the place of unknowing a little bit longer. See what emerges because it's easy enough for me to be busy. And that's not the big win right now. Um, but I do know, you know, I have a website, mbs.works, and that's more around um, B2C stuff, helping people be curious, be courageous, live the, find and live the best version of themselves. And that's kind of where I'm trending towards. You know, this idea of sovereignty that I've talked about a few times in this call, that's the concept I really like, which is seeing the world, understanding the world, making choice, the best possible choices in the world, taking responsibility for yourself and understanding you have agency in your life. That's, that's kind of a, a drumbeat. Man, it's been such a delight. Um, I highly encourage everyone to check out your website, uh, MBS, M for Mary, B for Bob, S for Sally, uh, dot works. Um, it is action packed with a lot more of this stuff and, and there's a link to Michael's uh, TEDx talk there as well. Um, Michael, if, if listeners want to get in touch with you online, what's the best way? Yeah, you know, uh, so the MBS.works, of course, is the hub, the website, but um, Instagram and LinkedIn are the two places I play around most. So my Instagram handle is MBS underscore works. And then on LinkedIn, it's just Michael Bungay Stania. Perfect. I'll link that up in the, uh, in the post when this goes up, uh, mate, it has been such a delight. Uh, I know it's early there, uh, Toronto time and, uh, late here, Sydney time. So we're, <laughs> we've flown on that, um, on that, uh, right, we can both go and have a glass of wine. I'm happy. <laughs> it's 8am, 8, 8, 8 but it's like, it's never too soon for a Shiraz. That's it. That's it, mate. Uh, thank you so much again for, for being here. And, um, I uh, can't wait for listeners to get in touch with you. Please do. If you're listening, um, I'm sure you've triggered in them something powerful that uh, can propel us into our better selves. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. 
Thank you for listening, dear Giants. I'm so grateful that you've spent this time tuning into this interview with Michael Bungay Stanya. Please send him a hi and hello over on his Instagram. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. His handle is mbs underscore works. If you're enjoying these episodes, one massive way that helps keep the show going is leaving an iTunes review. Please head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. It'll take you to the iTunes page. I read and appreciate every single review and helps get the show in front of more people who may need these stories and insights from our world-class guests. A little teaser for our next guest, his primary business is called Success Resources and that company is the world's largest education seminar company with over 1 billion in sales through his businesses. He is considered an expert in the touring space, having run more than 1,400 events in the last 17 years. Hosting thought leaders such as Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, Grant Cardone, Jay Shetty, Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad Poor Dad, Sir Richard Branson, and many more. Success Resources have staged and marketed world-class events in the fields of management and leadership, sales and marketing, personal development, and wealth creation to over 10 million participants in regions including Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, China, UK, Spain, Germany, South Africa, Italy, India, US, and Canada. Subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app and you'll be notified on when this goes live very soon. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on my Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, the giant thinker. All right, lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Michael who said, the first answer is never the right answer. Keep your sense of unknowingness a little bit longer. 